Hey folks, another busy week of politically charged legal news making the headlines. The Department of Justice filed a lawsuit challenging the Texas law that bans abortions once a fetal heartbeat can be detected at around six weeks of gestation. Meanwhile, President Biden signed an executive order mandating COVID-19 vaccinations for federal workers. Biden also directed the Department of Labor to institute a rule to require businesses with 100 or more employees to institute a vaccine mandate or subject workers to weekly testing. Joyce Vance and I discuss all of this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the insider community. So Preet, we have a question from at GWO Design. And the question is this, glad that Attorney General Garland is stepping up. Would love to hear at Joyce White Vance and at Preet Bharara discuss DOJ's lawsuit against Texas on Cafe Insider. I think we can make that happen. We can make that happen. We, we can indeed. I have an initial non-substantive reaction. So DOJ announced through Merrick Garland a lawsuit, which I didn't really predict what happened this quickly. And I, and I think there's a lot of strength to the lawsuit. I think it's not certain to prevail. But what I was struck by non-substantively is just how clear the lawsuit is, how clear the writing is. And in fact, so, so clear and simple and understandable that when I heard Merrick Garland giving his remarks, and then I look back and read the actual complaint, he was essentially reading from the complaint. You know, usually legal documents are kind of you know technical and not so interesting to read. And then people write remarks for the attorney general, the U.S. attorney that are simpler and for public consumption. Here, you know, the language was pretty similar. And in fact, you know, the very first sentence of the lawsuit, which I think was among the first sentences that came out of Merrick Garland's mouth was, quote, it is settled constitutional law that a state may not prohibit any woman from making the ultimate decision to terminate her pregnancy before viability, quoting Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and also citing to Roe v. Wade. So, you know, very clear what they're doing here. The basis for the lawsuit is a little bit more complicated, and that's why I'm going to punt that to you, Joyce. Thanks, Preet. So can I start by saying I was actually wrong about what happened here. When, when word first got out, that DOJ would be filing a lawsuit, I immediately thought about a case that I had filed in 2011, a challenge to Alabama's immigration law. There was a similar challenge in Arizona to Arizona's immigration law. That bill was called the Papers, Please Law. Alabama's was actually an evolution. It was significantly worse than Arizona's in a couple of ways, most notably that it made it very difficult for children, even American citizen children of undocumented people to attend public school and get the education that they were entitled to. So we filed a a separate lawsuit and bear with me for a second. I think this helps us understand the abortion case. Our challenge in Alabama was on essentially preemption grounds and supremacy clause grounds. Those are also asserted in the abortion case. And the allegation was the federal government had fully occupied the field of immigration. There were federal rules and federal laws. They were the supreme law of the land, and they preempted the ability of the states to engage in that area. 
But even with that challenge that we made, we didn't go after the entire immigration law. We picked out 10 pieces that we thought were the most blatantly unconstitutional, and we challenged them. And I'll also say that that was the result of a process of negotiation, primarily between my office and and folks in the Solicitor General's office. We worked along with people in the Civil Division and the Civil Rights Division, and we wanted to engage in a thoughtful charge that would protect the rights of people in Alabama from this overbroad unconstitutional law. But at the same time, we did not want to impose on the state's legitimate prerogatives. So I had predicted that when DOJ filed a lawsuit, it would be a limited, narrow challenge and that people shouldn't be disappointed by that. And as you point out, Preet, I was completely wrong. This is a broad challenge. Well, you weren't completely wrong. You weren't completely wrong. Those are among the bases for the DOJ lawsuit, right? Well, that's true, they are, but what DOJ does- You're being very hard on yourself, Joyce. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to help you out. I'm being fairly hard on myself here, mostly because I'm very impressed by the lawsuit that DOJ brought in this case. And that's the point I'm making. It's not a limited challenge at some of the provisions of the Texas law. They didn't just, for instance, object to the private enforcement action. Instead, this is the relief that they seek. They seek three things, and it's very broad. They ask for a declaration that SB 8 in its entirety- is invalid. They ask for a preliminary and a permanent injunction against enforcement of SB 8. And then in a provision that I really love, they ask that costs be awarded to the United States for having to undertake this litigation against Texas. But it's that first piece that I'm emphasizing here, this notion that the entire statute is unconstitutional and should be thrown out. And as you say, Preet, they make three basic arguments here. DOJ has three reasons that the the law is invalid. One is that federal law preempts the state's ability to act, that federal government has occupied the field. Second is that the Supremacy Clause and the 14th Amendment mean that the law of the land in this case is Roe and Casey, which guarantee a woman's right to an abortion prior to viability. And then finally, this novel argument that I, I really like, I think this might ultimately be the best argument of the three, that the state can't interfere with the federal agency's uh, mandate. This is the intergovernmental immunities exception. And the argument here is narrowly tailored. DOJ says that because federal agencies have a mandate to serve rape and incest victims in Texas in federal facilities, Texas can't interfere with that. And, And by putting those federal employees at risk of being sued under Texas law, they have again violated the supremacy clause. So there are those three different bases to invalidate the law. Let's linger on the third one for a moment, because that's the one that I didn't anticipate, because uh, I'm not as smart as the current DOJ regime. And, and just to amplify what you said so people understand, if you're someone in a, in a Bureau of Prisons facility, in a federal prison correctional facility in Texas, or you serve in the military, at a, at a Department of Defense facility and, and a bunch of other, I think there's six agencies mentioned in total that operate CMS. Immigration. OPM, Office of Personnel Management. And within those agencies, as you said, th- there is a federal requirement to provide abortion services because that is the law of the land. And this law, the Texas law, interferes with the ability of government personnel to do that because they will be subjected under SB 8 to lawsuit. 
that's a pretty strong argument. You know, it, it doesn't go to every single aspect of the of the law, although in other in other cases they make arguments about other aspects of the law. Did you anticipate that argument? I did not anticipate that argument, and I agree with you. This this was not a lawsuit that DOJ cobbled together overnight. This was the result of a long and thoughtful process. There's one other thing that's interesting. You know, as we discussed last week at great length, a, a novelty, I think a nefarious novelty, if we can use that term, of the Texas anti-abortion statute is the way they enforce it, right? They take, as we mentioned, they take all authority away from the government. You can't have a DA look at it. You can't have any other government official look at it. It's purely private enforcement. You know, it's it's mercenaries uh, who get a $10,000 plus bounty if they sue and prevail against someone who has induced an abortion or caused an abortion or aided and abetted the abortion in any way. And that was done to avoid liability here because they're not private actors. Remember this, this concept we were talking about at the beginning of the difference between a state actor and a private actor, it gets very complicated in certain, in certain circumstances like it does here. Because yes, on its face, and the reason that the ploy in the gambit was used was you have private actors who are much more difficult to enjoin, to stop, um, and even to identify if it's the public at large. So what is the way that the government, the federal government, can stop this enforcement mechanism? Well, it's private citizens. It's very difficult. So one thing the lawsuit does is make the argument, I don't know enough about this area of law, but it looks very credible on its face, that in certain circumstances, like here, the DOJ argues, private actors are basically the same as government actors. So what DOJ argues in trying to undo this distinction between state and private actors is they say, quote, awarding the monetary relief that SB8 authorizes constitutes state activity designed to violate the 14th Amendment rights of women in Texas. And it goes on to say, based on a Supreme Court case that we can talk about further in a moment, quote, the Supreme Court has deemed individuals to be state actors where they exercise powers traditionally exclusively reserved to the state, end quote. And it goes on to mention that, obviously, these individuals, the, the sort of public at large, the mercenaries, the bounty hunters, are given law enforcement authority. This is the kind of thing that on virtually every prior occasion, when you seek to enforce some interest of the state, it goes to the attorney general or it goes to the, the local district attorneys or some other government official. They are literally putting private citizens in the shoes of law enforcement officials. And they say that's a textbook case of treating these mercenaries, bounty hunters, as state actors. Does it work? So there's something here that I think has to be clarified, which is the way the process that brought the abortion case, not the DOJ case, but the case that was brought by abortion providers, the whole women case, there's an entanglement between the procedure that brought Whole Women's Health to the Supreme Court for the decision that we talked about last week, that decision that this state actor, or rather this absence of state actors, sort of uh, made it impossible for the courts to do anything. But the courts just had to throw up their hands and let the private vigilantes go to work because the state of Texas had outsmarted them. There was no record in the lower courts. We've talked, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about how the Fifth Circuit took the case away from the district judge. There were, was no briefing on the law. There was no conversation about what this really meant, whether it was, in essence, a device 
that amounted to state action conducted via private vigilantes. And so the Supreme Court on the shadow docket, without much in the way of ruling, just about a paragraph, says, not state action. We can't do anything. SB 8 has to go into effect. And what we find out in the DOJ lawsuit is, surprise, there's actually a lot of law to the contrary that the Supreme Court got away without considering precisely because there was no lower court proceeding, there was no record, there was no development of the law and the facts that might have led the court to a different conclusion. Frankly, I'm surprised that this argument, that that this dodge around official governmental action has worked as well as it has, because the case law is very clear. There's a 1948 case, Shelley versus Crane. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.